We'd like to take a minute and give a big thank you to all of our listeners who tune in to each episode, tag us in funny memes, or email us case suggestion, and most importantly, share our show with others. We truly appreciate everything you do for us, and we also adore all of you who support us financially. Whether you've given us a one-time donation via our website using PayPal or Buy Me a Coffee, or you bestow a recurring donation via Patreon, you guys are really helping us create some magic. I thought it might be interesting to let you know where your money goes. Recently, Alicia posted on Instagram about how we were matching donations for indigenous people affected by the wildfires here in the Northwest. We've also made donations this year to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, to many of the families affected by some of the murder cases we cover, and that's both on our free episodes as well as our mini episodes on Patreon. You might notice we also like to ask the people we interview what organizations and charities they would like us to support, because we will also make small donations to those as well. The show itself does have its own costs, whether it's for a new book for a case, we buy a coffee for one of the people we interview, or we're ordering court transcripts. Your money is quite literally helping to make the show happen. So thank you. And that being said, let's give another big thank you to our most recent It's Raining Cats and Dogs level Patreon signups, Aisha from Jordan and Sandra from Colton, California. Thanks, guys. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. So many things have happened, what feels like every single day in 2020, that it's been easy for stories of every kind to fall through the cracks. It feels especially true for good news. That's right, not only is today's story about something good, sort of, it's another edition of Alicia Teaches Us About Oregon's Racist History! As discussed in the episodes Disproportionate, Vamport, Mulligata Syrah, and Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them, I have taken us down some dark rabbit holes when it comes to the laws and history of our very racist state. I very recently, like as in earlier this week, learned about a law that disproportionately affected people of color. But the reason I learned about it is because it was overturned by the United States Supreme Court for being unconstitutional. On that note, I happened to have come across this case and got to writing it, but before I could finish, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away just two days ago as of this recording. We at Murder in the Rain, like most everyone, are heartbroken and wish we could just grieve and celebrate her and not fret about what it means for our country or women's rights. But we also feel hopeful and turn to one of her best quotes to give us resolution to keep moving forward. So often in life, things that you regard as an impediment turn out to be great good fortune. So we will take a moment to grieve before finding the fortune that is to come via these current impediments. Before we can celebrate the overturning of an unconstitutional law, we have to go back in time to the inception of the law, the damage it has caused for nearly 100 years, and some of the cases that were affected by its existence. Emily and Josh... When I say found guilty by a jury, what are some of the things or rules or phrases that come to mind? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes, that's a uh, great one. Uh, peers, 12 peers. Yes, uh, a jury of your peers. Uh, unanimous voting. 
Yes, unanimous. That is the word. That for a jury of your peers to find beyond a reasonable doubt that someone was guilty, you need a unanimous vote. Twelve angry men comes to mind when imagining the deliberations when there's a holdout or two. Well, up until May of this year, for non-first-degree murder cases, a jury could convict on a felony charge with a non-unanimous vote of 10 to 2 or 11 to 1. Isn't that interesting? I did know that. And I had no I've idea. always found it really odd because in movies and in court cases, it's always unanimous. The year is 1934, and Oregon has voted to amend the state's constitution. The change? To allow for non-unanimous jury convictions on cases that don't involve first-degree murder charges. Only Louisiana is in the same boat with us, allowing for such outcomes in felony trials. But that seems stupid and perhaps illegal, says you. And I says, doesn't it? So what was going on in the state that a ballot would be voted on to create such circumstances? For that, we turn to the story of Jacob Silverman. It's the morning of April 21st, 1933. Shy Frank Kodat, 50, is the owner of a speakeasy slash brothel slash halfway house for ex-cons on Water Street on the east side of the river in Portland, not far from where my beloved Montage used to reside. Rest in peace. As anyone that watches gangster movies knows, you don't earn a nickname like Shy by not being involved in some nefarious undertakings. And Shy Frank was no exception. He had been a safe cracker, among other things. After his last stint in the slammer, Frank knew he was dying from tuberculosis and kidney failure, and he wanted to turn things around and help out his fellow gangsters by providing them with a place to sleep and illegal booze to drink and illegal women to pay for sex work and directions for criminal acts that he could get a cut of. But other than that, it was on the up and up. And the former profession was how he had come to meet Jimmy Walker, who was 37 at the time and had just finished a three-year sentence for burglary in the Oregon State Penitentiary. That April morning, around 10, 11 a.m., there was a fight. One could assume that the group in the speakeasy had been drinking through the night, and one of Shy Frank's house guests had accused Jimmy of stealing his watch, Everyone privy to the situation knew this was going to be more than a case of a missing watch. Jimmy had been staying at the halfway house, along with Frank and the other ex-cons. There was someone that caught Jimmy's eye, Edith McLean, shy Frank's girlfriend. So it's not surprising that Frank approached Jimmy about the watch. He was already on edge due to him basically working to steal his girl. But Frank didn't have a lot of fight in him, though, so his energy was quickly drained by the confrontation. Frank eventually left Jimmy in the main part of the house as he went to his room. Then Jimmy did what he did best. He rummaged. Then he found a 38 special. Then a shot rang out. Be it from purposeful aim or an accidental firing, the gun went off and went through a wall before catching a drunk Frank in his back while he laid on his bed. Frank didn't die, but Jimmy knew he had crossed a line. Again. Jimmy knew he was in deep trouble because Frank wasn't just a former safecracker, he was a current crime boss. And when you're a safecracker and go to prison a few times for it, everyone wants to be your friend. Additionally, shy Frank was notoriously well-liked. Jimmy was screwed. He ran as the gun hit the floor and made his way to a nearby hotel where his friend and fellow ex-convict Ray was staying. In a panic, he banged on the door and told his friend everything, that he had shot the beloved crime boss and he needed to run away with Edith. Jimmy stayed in the hotel while Ray got his friend Larry Johnson, 
Larry and Ray returned to the hotel and Jimmy, explaining that they had everything organized, that word would go to Edith for her to come there, and that they had a guy that would come pick them up that night and get them out of town. Ray, realizing the gravity of the ordeal, wanted a perfect alibi, so he broke into a jewelry store and waited to get arrested. He knew that would be his safest out. Jimmy and Edith waited and watched as a huge seven-passenger maroon Studebaker pulled up to the hotel late that night. They knew it was their ride. Three men were already in it, and they helped the new Bonnie and Clyde into the car, and they were on their way. Scapoose is to the northwest of Portland, up in that left little corner hump that Oregon has. And just outside of Scapoose is where logger L.W. Morgan spotted something odd on the morning of April 22nd. What he saw looked like a person lying down. Perhaps it was someone that got drunk and passed out. Maybe there had been an accident. But as he got closer, it was apparent that none of those were the case. On Otto Mueller Road in Columbia County, he found not one but two bodies— Jimmy had been shot through his heart and head, while Edith had bullet wounds in her right arm and face. There was a rock bunker on one side of the road and their bodies on the other, and there was something else that caught the investigators' eyes. Tire tracks. Even in the 1930s, detectives were getting their forensic files on and using plaster to make tire impressions. Those tire impressions and bullet gauges were all they had for evidence. And those two murders would be the catalyst for a change in Oregon law that would affect hundreds of lives and court cases. But how could a couple of jealous gangsters showing off their finest white male rage skills create a new racist law? Well, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> While they didn't have evidence, the cops were aware of the shooting that had occurred and had already been questioning those that had been at the speakeasy. No wonder Ray got himself arrested. He had told Frank where Jimmy was hiding out, so he did know just how bad things were going to get. Two of the men involved with that crowd were brothers Maurice and Jacob Silverman. It wasn't too long before it was learned that the vehicle eyewitnesses saw outside Frank's at the hotel and near the bodies was the exact same very noticeable, very large maroon Studebaker owned by Jacob. The guys at the house, people at the hotel, and neighbors on the road in Scapoose all saw the same car. Many eyewitnesses even placed Jacob himself at the scene with two other men, Jimmy and Edith. Additionally, the tire prints matched. Jacob was brought to trial using the defense that it wasn't his car that was used to commit the crime because he had called his brother to take the car to get work done on the tires, and the next day he had called a mechanic about the clutch. Prosecution, having two different mechanics examine the car, confirmed that there was no issue with the clutch, so those phone calls wouldn't have been necessary. I won't bore you with the judge's rulings on the phone calls and hearsay and so forth. Suffice it to say, Jacob's goose was cooked. Despite the only evidence they had being tire impressions and eyewitnesses saying Jacob was with the people that turned up dead, there was nothing to prove he had actually committed the murders. But in accordance with Oregon law, the state abrogates the distinction between an accessory before the fact and a principal and between the principals in the first and second degree in cases of felony and provides all persons concerned in the commission of a felony, whether they directly commit the act constituting the crime or aid and abet in its commission, though not present, must hereafter be indicted, tried, and punished as principals, as in the case of a misdemeanor. Everyone follow? Yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> That quarantine law class has really come in handy. Basically what it's saying is 
just as they would in a misdemeanor where you can be charged for being there as part of the crime, they're saying uh, that, yes, same thing. The fact that whether or not you were the direct principal person, you or obviously you were, were present Got it. when these people died. So murder was the charge, but the lacking evidence did have its effect on one juror. There was a holdout that would not convict. This forced the court to convict Jacob on the lesser charge of manslaughter for which he served three years. Of the group of men that were seen with the couple before their demise, Jacob was the only one charged. Little did that one juror know that his decision would change the course of Oregon law for a century. As discussed in those previous episodes, us Oregonians have a bit of a Ku Klux Klan problem, an infestation really, and the 1930s were ripe with them. Those white supremacists were upset about the ruling. And why do you think that would be? Let me reiterate that the defendant's name was Jacob Silverman. I know you're probably hoping you aren't putting the pieces together, but you are. Yes, they were furious that a Jewish man was not convicted of murder, even though there was such little evidence. This editorial in The Oregonian after the verdict really paints the picture. This newspaper's opinion is that the increased urbanization of American life and the vast immigration into America from Southern and Eastern Europe of people untrained in the jury system have combined to make the jury of 12 increasingly unwieldy and unsatisfactory. It only took a few weeks for the state legislature to create a ballot to be voted on that would amend the Oregon Constitution to allow for non-unanimous convictions except in first-degree murder cases. It passed and remained on the Oregon Constitution for the next 87 years. In the last few years, Oregon and Louisiana, whose law was put in place for similar Jim Crow-inspired reasons, were the only two states that still allowed for non-unanimous jury convictions. There had been conversations and court battles for decades to remove the law, including in 1968 where the Supreme Court found that unanimous juries are part of the rights included in the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution, the amendment that provides the right to a trial by jury. And again in 1972 when the Supreme Court heard another case regarding unanimity which came to a split decision with judges disagreeing as to if the amendment applied to the state decisions or only federal. So the states held on to their individual laws and continued continued convicting with non-unanimous juries. It took the case of Ramos versus Louisiana being argued in front of the Supreme Court to find non-unanimous juries to be unconstitutional. And that was on April 20th, 2020. Justice Neil Gorsuch, writing for the majority and about the Oregon creation of this law, stated it can similarly be traced to the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and efforts to dilute the influence of racial and ethnic and religious minorities on Oregon juries. Oregon law was now going back to how it should have always been, that you need a unanimous jury to convict. Yay! Right? Well, for cases moving forward, it's very much a yay. But what about the last 87 years? It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that yes, there were an untold number of cases that were convicted on a non-unanimous jury. So what to do about so many unconstitutional convictions? Luckily, Oregon leaders understood this meant cases would need to be reviewed and most likely retried. So they started with 74 cases, dating all the way back to 2015. Of those 74 cases, you get an idea what the hundreds of cases that were affected by the law will look like when reviewed. The average age of the defendants was 46, and only two of them were female. Average sentencing was 117 years. 
Of the 74 defendants, 33 were white, 12 were black. Yes, it's half the amount of whites, but as Portland's demographics have previously been discussed, say it with me now, disproportionate. 10 of which were Hispanic, 3 were Asian, and unknown, 16. And that is why this is a racist law. When you are arresting people of color at a higher rate, they are going to be tried at a higher rate. Yet when the percentage of the people of color in your potential juror population is so low, you might only have one or two jurors that are black. Keeping this law in place was like jury roulette, done in hopes of silencing the defendant's actual peers. So of those 74 cases that they're reviewing, the crimes that were tried were most commonly sexual abuse at 21 cases, 17 cases of assault, 12 cases of felony possession of a firearm, 10 cases of burglary, 10 cases of sodomy, 9 cases of rape, 6 cases of attempted murder, and 1 case of arson. Sure, there are cases that fall in the non-unanimous category that have a lot of compelling evidence or look like slam dunks, but it doesn't matter. Their trial was unconstitutional and they deserve a review and a retrial. One such case is that of Olin Germain Williams. A Portlander, Olin graduated from Jefferson High School in 2001 before going to Howard University where he earned a master's degree. In 2012, he had a criminal conviction of a DUII but had no other record. He was married to his husband and was not known as any kind of predator. That was until he went to a summer barbecue and all of that would change. You may have been watching the news and keeping an eye on the Vanessa Guillen case out of Fort Hood, Texas. Well, Military Murder is a podcast about cases just like this. Murders that occur around the world at the hands of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and sometimes even veterans. In addition to extensive coverage of the Vanessa Guillen case, Military Murder recently featured an unsolved murder case out of North Carolina. Get this, during Memorial Day weekend this year, eight soldiers went camping, but only seven returned home. The eighth soldier's partial remains washed ashore six days later, and his death was ruled a homicide. The case involves a sketchy 911 call with conflicting information by the friends and a $25,000 reward offered by Army investigators looking for the public's help. New episodes of Military Murder are available every Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. And with a backlog of 40 episodes, there is plenty of content for you to binge. Now go on, subscribe and listen to Military Murder. I have reached out to Olin and his lawyer, but as this case is still an appeal, they are unable to speak with us. But this is a synopsis of his case, according to Oregon Live. It was summer 2014, and Olin was attending a barbecue with some friends. As we've all encountered, there was someone that partied a little too hard and had to be assisted to a place of rest before the remaining guests could go on with their evening, heading out to a bar. Olin offered his apartment as a good place to put the partier, and the group agreed, and the man was moved to Olin's couch. According to the victim, a heterosexual white male that Olin had only met that day at the barbecue, and I'm only saying that in the context of the charges, not that being a straight white male means anything else here. Well, he woke up on Olin's couch, possibly still intoxicated, and realized he was receiving oral sex from Olin. Because yes, a man can be sexually assaulted. A man can be the victim of a sex crime. Men need to give consent too. A man coming forward with such claims should be believed, allowing for investigations and trials to hopefully do their jobs. Upon said investigation, Olin's DNA was found on the front interior panel of the victim's underwear. This, according to the defense, could have occurred via transfer DNA while the man was being moved to the couch, but that information was not found to be admissible. 
taken to trial fairly quickly the first two counts were dropped this may have had something to do with the defense's claim that the victim had been uncertain about the charges leading up to the trial go to trial and by the end of it was in a nine guilty to three not guilty debate hours were spent attempting to get three jury members including the only black person to change their minds and find him guilty so they could be done then a court clerk came in to check on the jury and began to make plans for their return the following day. A lack of desire to return and difficulties with childcare led to one of the jury members flipping. That flip allowed for a 10 to 2 conviction for which Olin was sentenced to 100 months, which is 8 years and 4 months, plus 20 years of post-prison supervision minus time served. He filed for appeals almost exclusively on the grounds of the unconstitutionality of non-unanimous juries, but he was denied any recourse. Even when that lone black juror stepped up at a hearing to explain to a judge she felt there was no way that Olin received a fair trial, her plea, as it had in that deliberation room, fell on deaf ears. And when denied a new trial by a judge, Olin wasn't given the usual single sentence as a response. He instead received a 32-page opinion about how unfair the non-unanimous law was, you know, while being denied a new trial. So scathing was the letter of the law and included lines like, If one wanted to craft a system to silence the average number of non-white jurors on an Oregon jury, one could not create a more efficient system than the 10-2. I didn't hear much about it when it came out, so I feel like no one watched it, but the documentary Outcry on Showtime shows a great example of people being out of jail while their cases are still in appeal and how it affects those people's lives. It's also another case of small-town judicial system foolishness. It's really well done, and people should watch it. But I bring that up because Olan was in the same situation. He was able to leave prison after less than a year as his case was pending, which feels a little bit like if this dude was a convicted sexual predator, wouldn't you not risk having him repeat offend by keeping him behind bars if he's so dangerous? That's not knocking the ability of people to do this. I think it more so highlights the ridiculous hoops the judicial system makes everyone jump through. The bigger reason for his limited release was due to the fact that the Oregon Supreme Court knew that the U.S. Supreme Court was going to be hearing the case of Ramos versus Louisiana and the effect its outcome was going to have on all of the cases. Olan's case was then taken to the Oregon Supreme Court, and based on the ruling at the Supreme Court, Oregon courts had no choice but to recognize the federal ruling and refer his case to the circuit courts. That was only back this last June, so now he waits to hear if the circuit courts decide to retry after they review the case, speak with police and victims, and decide if there's enough evidence to move forward. Maybe he'll be retried and found guilty with a 10-12 jury. Maybe he'll get time served. Maybe charges will be dropped. For now, it's a waiting game. While the reversal is great news for Olan, you can't help but wonder what those judicial findings mean for all the other cases that were tried and convicted with an unconstitutional jury. How many people wrongfully died behind bars due to this loophole? So many cases are impacted by this. And then it just goes like, where do you start? Where do you cut it off? Are we going to go through them all? It's just so unfair. And as I mean, as you can hear, so it was 74 cases in the last five years. So... Literally, you do the math because I hate math, but that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And yeah, do you, in the name of doing what's right, do you go back all those years to when it were first started and say this person, you know, even if it's posthumously, to say this person would have been deserving of a new trial? 
and just list it in the newspaper or something. I feel like you have to. If you're going to do it for some of them, you have to do it for all of them. It's yeah. totally unfair. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, well, I'm not going to say a lot of people. I'd hope not a lot of people. When you look at something, there's always a margin of error. And maybe there's one juror holding out because they're getting paid or somebody's blackmailing them yeah. or something. Like, that shit does happen. Absolutely. But that is why we do retrials. Yeah. But then I think of how how much money is this going to cost, too, to review all these cases? A lot. Yeah. It's pretty pretty frightening. But, I mean, I'm positive about it. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, look at this horrible thing that we've been doing for years. Because who knows? I don't know if people tried to bring this up many times or what. But. Yeah, yeah. They've, I mean, for years there's been advocates, you know, on the local level. And like I said, they tried it at the Supreme Court, but it was under kind of different umbrellas where it was yeah. more so like it wasn't a case specific. It was more, yes, we're finding that that is correct for the Constitution, but it allowed Oregon to keep doing it. I was just shocked that I didn't know this. Yeah. I, I felt uh, kind of gobsmacked of that's a big deal and you we should be hearing about it more. And uh, yeah, you just wonder through all those years or who's in prison now that's been there 20, 30, 40 years that was put do you start with those cases do you start with I things would, that are coming through I would appeal start with pipeline the oldest right now case like, with living yeah convicts yeah i'd hope so and just say sorry yeah it sucks that it's going to cost everyone money but that's what happens when you make horrible laws so well, and now you can feel better about our decisions moving forward exactly and this is a case of where it's like why is that not a federal dictated right. law right but then it's like states have choice for a reason because sometimes our federal government is wrong you know? yeah <laughs> oh for sure but yeah it does feel like especially with how our court system works where if you go up to this court and then you can go up to the next court and higher court higher court higher court you would like to think that they would all be connected that they're all speaking the same language mm-hmm. and they're all reading from the same book and it's like so not even close Ooh, yeah well you see that illuminated in that curtis flowers case i mean the man went to trial what six times mm-hmm. it's like how were they letting this guy this da get away with that mm-hmm. I, yeah i'm yeah. surprised regularly about how our court differs state to state yeah never shocked constantly surprised <laughs> I don't know enough about Olan's case to know if he should be behind bars because he sexually assaulted someone or if he should have all charges drop and be home free. What I do know is that every person brought before the courts has a constitutional right to a fair trial. I don't care if you're Jeffrey Dahmer or Paris Hilton. A fair trial is a fair trial. You know that whole thing about liberty and justice for all. Some, like the dissenting judges on the Supreme Court decision, feel that the correction will be too overwhelming to the system. Could every one of the 2,900 cases that are waiting for appeal in Oregon need a new trial because that law even existed? Maybe. Will it cost the state a lot of money? It sure will. But those are not reasons to keep things in place. Just because a change is difficult doesn't mean it isn't worth doing. This law and these convictions are why we say that race and the judicial system and politics are all intertwined. This is what systematic racism looks like, creating a system, in this case the judicial one, that has tools in place specifically used to target and oppress minorities. 
And it's Supreme Court findings like this, overturning an archaic law that shows there is hope for growth and change in the judicial system, that even now in 2020, those that know the law and constitution are able to look at a flaw in the system, recognize its roots, and dismiss it based on the biases and racism it exists on. And it might help your heart to know that when it came to the ruling, Justices Clarence Thomas, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Brett Kavanaugh all came together in agreement. So there is hope that the courts are truly looking at cases through a constitutional and legal lens, not just a political one. Right is right, and for once, somebody got something right. Once again, it is time for COVID commercials. Just a few shout-outs, and you'll be paid handsomely in bloopers. Murder in the Rain is dedicated to the support of small businesses, especially during these trying times. So if you're a business owner and would like to be featured in a COVID commercial, please send us an email at murderintherain at gmail.com. First up, we have Salty Siren Clothing. Not only is this a small, home-based, female-owned business, they are raising funds for Oregon wildfire support. She has multiple, very cute Oregon-themed designs, and all proceeds from those designs will go to local firefighters. So, check out the thesaltysirenclothing.company.site to support so many things with just a few clicks. For gorgeous handcrafted bath bombs, bath salts, and all sorts of self-care goodies, check out Tabby Von Body Naturals on Instagram. That's Tabby, T-A-B-B-Y, underscore, Von, V-O-N, underscore, body, underscore, naturals. And treat yourself. Speaking of self-care, baths are nice, but let's not forget our mental health. That's where birdofthemoonhypnosis.com comes in. Owned by a woman in Washington, you can visit birdofthemoonhypnosis.com to explore how hypnosis could help you. Next is our friends at sucrabay.com. They are a female-owned fragrance company that you may have seen me unboxing on our Instagram. Not only are the scents delightful, the names are frightfully adorable, such as Bloody Murder and Cauldron. There might be something Murder in the Rain themed coming soon, so be sure to follow their Instagram at S-U-C-R-E-A B-E-I-L-L-E Sucre Bay and visit their website to get some spooky themed fragrances for your Halloween gift boxes. Finally, we have more self-care skin products. Butter Effect PDX is a black-owned Portland-based skincare company that makes nearly edible-looking body butter with flavors like honey apricot. You might have heard of Butter Effects PDX when the owner had a video they posted go viral when, as a census worker, they were verbally accosted by a Kevin asking why they were on the property. Racist, racist, blah, blah, blah. So let's go show Butter Effect PDX some love and at the same time, give our skin some love. Thank you for listening and supporting these and your own local small businesses. Remember, spending your money is like voting, so choose wisely. What are you recording? Sexy, sexy yeah. times. Okay, so fill me in on this. Oh, I'll, oh, I'd I'll love love to fill, fill you in. in. <laughs> and the work that he does with sound effects, like to create an ambiance. Because when I did, like I was good. <laughs> Here's the question, though. I think Whatever. it'd be fun and how just to have it. like a little side. Yeah. Like I, my parents aren't going to like seek out this thing. Oh no, no one. And would, so well, it's like. when they If they hear a sample of mine, they might. Ow. I hit my balls with my phone. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> I'm right here, guys. Literally three and a half feet from your door. I can see your feet. Simply Steve. Simply Steve. Simply like Steve. Steve. Simply. <laughs> Simply Steve. Dude, free stuff. Okay. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> what a run and I was <laughs> I felt how tight it was getting Zatarans <laughs> oh my god I nearly died Zatarans. you nearly died did you hear me Oof. holy crap <laughs> so much stuff in there okay doesn't no. that worry you are you worried you'll fall in love with her no Look at her. She's awful. <laughs> what if she, it was her idea? I could see this happening. And she's like. They would never. They would never At do a certain that point, she's like, she's behind Keith just pushing his butt <laughs> for, her, for him. Get her. Pull on uh, uh, like, house, housewives, midwives, wives. Oh, yeah. House, uh, handsmaid's Tale. Handsmaid's Tale. What time do you have to leave? 3.30. So are you going to hang? We could get Subway again, watch some cash yeah, cab. And to be found beyond a reasonable doubt, you would assume the jury would have to be... Intelligent? Unanimous. Unanimous. Oh, fuck. That's the word I'm looking for. I sounded so stupid saying the word intelligent just now. <laughs> Despite the lack of evidence and the only... <clears throat> Hello? And again in 1972 when the Supreme Court heard another case regarding unanimity... It's pronounced yuba dibbity. <laughs> Taken to trier. Taken to trier. I'm sorry. I'm going to trier. Excuse me. Got to go to trier. <laughs> oh, no. I'm late for my trier. Did you guys Did you guys read that news article about that really big trier that happened? <laughs> That was great. I didn't know where it was going. That was great. It's a child of century. (laughs) (laughs) Child of century. Oh, boy. You did say non-guilty a second ago. Is that okay? No. Okay. She meant not, but she couldn't go without another bloop. I can't wait. It's my recording day. I need to make many bloops. So much, and everyone listening is gonna know how funny I am, <laughs> and all gonna be my friends, and it's gonna be so cool. <sighs> to explain to a judge, she felt there was no way Olin received a fair trial. <laughs> Why can't I see trial today? But speaking of funny horse stories, when I was in middle Mr. school, Mr. Hands, the worst part is I didn't do any pranks. Because just they didn't work out, but I wanted to ride the horse to school to to be like, hey, you guys have to take care of my horse because it's in the bylaws. Like, <laughs> you end up in local news. Did you say you were you're putting no- you were putting bales of hay in front of the doors? Yeah, so to create like a fire trap or a- yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough, written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland, artwork by Jamie Costa, music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. 
Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. listeners, Kai Pfeiffer here, friend, fan, and music composer for your favorite podcast, Murder in the Rain. Alicia, Emily, and Josh said I should tell you all about the new Parish EP just released by my music collective, KO Theory. The Parish EP is available on most streaming services right now. The music is an eclectic mix of hip-hop, indie pop, and R&B. Here's a quick sample. to the Murder in the Rain team for exploring some of the stranger and more fascinating murders in the rainy Northwest. And thanks to all of you listeners out there for checking out KO Theory's EP. In fact, you might want to go and give it a listen once you're done with this episode. Give it a listen or perish. Perish. <laughs>